Hello, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. So we are in that post-Thanksgiving time, or maybe I should say the time right after the November Thursday many of us have called Thanksgiving, and that many people indigenous to this land recognize as a day of mourning. Maybe you had a chance to listen to the special edition of this podcast last week, in which three of us wrestled together with the history of Thanksgiving and how our celebrations tend to collude with the obfuscation of the genocide committed during the colonization of this country. If so, you know that I came away from that conversation with more questions than answers regarding how to spend that day. Our household ended up not celebrating this year, We went for a long hike, paid into a reparations fund called the Shumi Land Tax that goes to support local Ohlone people, and shared a simple meal. That all felt fine, but I've since learned that some of our dear ones who usually come to our house for the annual feast ended up alone that day, and that doesn't feel quite right. There are no easy answers. I tell myself we are living the questions, as Rilke puts it. Maybe next year we'll do it differently. But it seems appropriate to be in a place of questioning as we enter into Advent, a time of waiting and anticipating, but also, I think, questioning what we should be doing and how we should be being in light of what is coming. Before we dive in, I have an opening question for you, a question that came to me as I read and prayed over this week's gospel passage, which tells us to look for the time when the leaves appear on the fig tree and its branches become tender. We know that the fig tree often represents Israel or the people of God. So this image seems to refer to a time when we are ripening as a people, beginning to come back to life, beginning to look more like God intended. The sap is beginning to flow within us again. We are coming back to life after a time of dormancy and our branches are becoming tender. As I sat with this image, the question that arose is this, what would it mean for you to become tender in this time? Even in the midst of all that is happening in the world, all of the things that make us angry and fearful and cynical, even in the midst of the pre-Christmas frenzy. What does it mean to become tender in the midst of it all? Can you feel it in your body? A certain courageous opening, a certain resolve to drop our defenses, 
Let's sit with this for a moment. Like Mary, I believe we are being called into a fierce tenderness. We are being invited to say yes to something unheard of and unknown, something that we encounter in the dark. We are called to make preparations in the darkness for the coming of a great light, a liberation that is beyond our imagining. My comrade, Reverend Kamal Hassan, reminded me recently that Advent is not about the little baby Jesus, but a grown-up liberator Jesus. It's not a preparation so much for an anniversary of that long-ago birth as it is for the second coming of Christ. That liberator is on his way, or her way, or even better, their way, and we are called to wait by the door to welcome them in. So let's turn now to Mark 13, verses 24 through 37. I'll also be referring back to the seventh chapter of Daniel, so you might want to cue that up too. do these days when I approach the New Testament is to remind myself that Jesus is not white. Jesus is not white. That's not a small thing, you know. It's not insignificant. It's not a surface detail, but an indicator of social status. Jesus came from a colonized people living under occupation. He was poor, a carpenter, which according to some scholars placed him even below the peasant class. He was and is not white. The church under white supremacy depicts Jesus as white, blonde, and blue-eyed, and the white church has built its whole theology around this, around the assumption that Jesus was white, middle-class, you know, pretty much like most mainline Protestant churchgoers. But Jesus came from a very different social location, He came from the underclass, and that means that all of my inherited interpretations of these texts need to be re-examined, and my whole understanding of salvation and what that might mean needs to be reimagined. What happens when we remember that the Jesus in our first Advent Gospel passage is a colonized, brown-skinned, lower-working-class Palestinian Jew? How does that challenge our conventional readings of this Advent pericope? Who is it now who is coming on the clouds with great power and glory? Who is this grown-up liberator Jesus from the world's oppressed peoples? And what does that mean for us, for white Americans? Fear and trembling is appropriate in the face of such an Advent. Fear and trembling are not necessarily bad things. They are just unfamiliar. I am just accustomed to feeling more or less at home in the world, more or less safe, more or less good and appropriate and righteous. And to be honest, these feelings contribute to incredible numbness. The notion of a savior who is not white like me 
who does not share my assumptions about the world, who has not enjoyed the protected status that I enjoy. This notion shocks me out of my numbness and leaves me not in pity, which I think is how a lot of white church people view people of color when we think about racism at all. No, not in pity, but in fear and trembling. Such a savior might truly turn the world upside down stripping away my advantages and instituting a kind of justice that I can scarcely imagine, fear and trembling. I think this fear is at the root of the patriarchal white supremacist backlash we are currently experiencing in this country. I think at some level white people and maybe white wealthy cisgender men in particular know that we have an irreparable debt to pay one that we have heretofore refused to acknowledge. And that is why the notion of losing our white majority status in the U.S. is so threatening. What will happen when the tables are turned? This is the question that haunts our politics today. This fear is provoking an intense backlash of violence and repressive social policy. And I wonder... I wonder if there is a way for us to inspire the white people in our own communities to view these changing demographics with hope, with a sense of what it might mean for us to have to acknowledge the debt, finally. Can we give white people a sense of the true aliveness that it might make possible if we didn't have to defend this travesty anymore, if we were no longer numb? This may be the opportunity we have before us this Advent, if we are unwilling to unpack passages like this with an open acknowledgement of who the Christ is and where she or he or they are located socially. So, what would it mean if the Son of Man, the Savior for whom we wait, were not white? If the human one, as biblical scholar Webb Neely has translated that phrase, son of man, if the human one were instead an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, or a Haitian with temporary protected status, or a queer black woman in a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, or even a gender non-conforming Muslim from Libya or Somalia or Iran, what if she doesn't live in the United States at all? What would this mean for white Americans? The image of the Son of Man coming on a cloud with great power and glory is straight out of the book of Daniel, that wild visionary book of prophecy that everyone says is so hard to understand, but that is actually quite straightforward if you understand one fundamental thing, that God's kingdom stands in opposition to every system of violent domination, and especially to the ideologies that support the violent acquisitive empires of this world. In our day, that means white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, and militarism. Daniel's vision suggests that they are all coming down. I think it's helpful to look back at Daniel in order to understand what Jesus is doing with this allusion in this week's lectionary passage. The image that Jesus calls upon here from Daniel chapter 7, in which someone or something called the Ancient One or the Ancient of Days is presiding over a kind of court in which judgment is being rendered. 
Here's how Daniel begins his narration of this scene. This is from Daniel chapter 7. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. That's interesting, isn't it? Pure wool? It doesn't sound like the ancient one is white either. The passage continues, his throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. It's such a pregnant moment, isn't it? Fear and trembling. Something new is about to happen. What happens is that very quickly this ancient one renders judgment on the beast, commonly understood to represent the empire, and then sentences it to death. And at that very moment, the Son of Man appears in the clouds, and he or she or they are immediately granted eternal authority over all the earth, all peoples, nations, and languages. One reign is replaced by another very different one. So much depends upon who this Son of Man is, this human one, right? In the Hebrew scriptures that Daniel would have been writing from, the phrase Son of Man referred to the prophets, the very human people whom God, who represented God's message to their leaders and contemporaries and who nearly always suffer as a result. The Son of Man is the prophets whom Jerusalem kills. He is Daniel thrown to the lions. The Son of Man represents those people who are unjustly condemned because they hold up a mirror to the powers. In the New Testament, he is Jesus of Nazareth. In our day, he might be Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X or Mumia Abu-Jamal or Berta Carceres, people unjustly condemned, sometimes to death and sometimes to prison because they spoke an unpalatable truth. She, the Son of Man, might be someone condemned to poverty in Mexico or Haiti or Burundi through no fault of her own, but as a result of international trade and banking policies. Her distended belly and ragged clothing stand in condemnation of the ruling powers, and so they have to make her somehow inferior, somehow responsible for her own suffering. The son of man might be a Syrian refugee condemned to statelessness, or a gender non-conforming person anywhere in the world condemned to persecution. She might be an unarmed black mother gunned down by the police. The Son of Man is someone who is unjustly condemned, either overtly to death or prison, or implicitly to inhumane living conditions, and who is then made out to be deserving of that suffering. And this Son of Man, this human one, this condemned one, is coming to judge the world. The one who has been condemned is declared innocent. This is the meaning of the crucifixion and resurrection, right? And this greater judgment reveals that the world's justice, the world's way of determining who deserves what, is a sham destined for destruction. The crucifixion and resurrection have rendered the justice system of the world invalid, showing it to be the prejudicial instrument by which the powerful maintain their power. What does this have to say to an American criminal justice system that incarcerates black and brown people at a rate more than five times the rate for white people? 
who has been condemned unjustly in our society, and what would it be like if they were granted authority over the very system that had condemned them? The crucifixion and resurrection puts the lie to all our justifications for inflicting suffering on one another. White supremacy and colonialism, patriarchy and militarism, all of it. This son of man, this human one, whom we await in Advent, is, as Kamal Hassan has said, a battle-tested hope. It is a hope that has known suffering and yet grown tender, like the fig tree in the spring. A hope that has weathered the storm and never veered from love. It is forged not in sentimental love, not in politeness, but in a fierce love, a love that has suffered and that is inseparable from truth, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling and also awe and so much hope, especially for those of us who have been condemned ourselves, those of us who are women and have not been believed, hashtag me too. Those of us who are LGBTQ and have been taught that we are an abomination those of us who are poor and have been led to believe that it is our own fault. But also hope, I think, for our more privileged identities, for white people, for men, for people of means. What would it be like not to have to defend a lie anymore, not to have to protect your wealth or perform a rigid gender role? What would it be like to rejoin the family of humanity as an equal, just one person among the people? What would it be like not to have to know the answers all the time, to acknowledge that you are not, after all, the savior of the world? What burdens would be lifted off your shoulders? What dancing might you do in the aftermath? As we move toward a close, I want to turn briefly to the closing parable in today's passage, the one about slaves keeping watch. First of all, I want to acknowledge what Reverend Ann Dunlap has spoken so powerfully about, that it is disturbing, to say the least, that both Jesus and Paul speak so dispassionately about slavery and servanthood as if they can't imagine a world, even a kingdom of God, without those wretched practices. But today I want to take a slightly different approach for the sake of posing what might be a fruitful question for us white people. So the word translated here as slave or servant could also mean retainer, someone who has pledged loyalty to an aristocratic household, often as a business manager or property manager. A retainer of this kind puts himself in service of the landowner, often as a way out of poverty, which was, of course, the destiny of the majority of the population in first century Palestine. There's much to say about this. It was hardly a just economic arrangement. But today what interests me is the pledge of loyalty. You see, if you pledge loyalty to a wealthy landowner, much of what you ended up doing was collecting rent and expropriating land from peasants who were left destitute as a result. I've talked elsewhere about the similarities between this arrangement and our own where many of us do the dirty work of people much wealthier than us in order to avoid being destitute ourselves. And in so doing, we make others destitute. So it interests me, this notion of pledging loyalty to the master of this particular house, 
whose owner, it seems, is Jesus, is the Son of Man, the human one, who, as I mentioned, is not white, who comes from the underclass, who is, in economic terms, pretty much a servant himself. What does it mean for the doorman to stand watch to open it for the glorious coming of another slave like him? I think it might just lead to a very different economic and social ethic. What does it mean to keep watch for the coming of a son of man who is not white? Think about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But for now, we watch. We wait. We prepare. Something's coming. Something fearful and awe-inspiring and wonderful. It is already at the door. Are we ready? Amen. two suggested practices for you this week. First, spend some time meditating on the coming of a Savior that is not white. Ask God what this means for you and for other white people with whom you are in community. What are you being asked to do? How are you being asked to be? Spend some time maybe in solitary meditation and have some conversations with other receptive white people in your life. Second, seek out and read some post-colonial theology or liberation theology. If we take seriously that Jesus was not white, then we have to acknowledge that we can't fully understand what he was about from our privileged position as white people, and we need to read commentary from people positioned closer to where he was. I'll list some good resources in the resources section of the transcript. Thank you for joining me today. It's a privilege to live these questions with you. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Next week, Alan will take on the scriptures for the second week of Advent. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast.
Our sound editor this week is Lynette McFadden. Thank you, Lynette. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Children.